episode 222 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 27th of March, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Fanon. Copper wire on the internet. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Yeah, Phelan, your internet's playing up, so you're having to tether your phone. Yes, it's going to be so reliable, and I look forward to the piecing it all back together afterwards. Uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Let's do some news then. And we have to start with bad news, and that is that Gordon Moore has died, aged 94. He, of course, is famous for Moore's Law and being one of the founders of Intel. I mean, it's a good opportunity to look through his life, and it's incredible how many things he'd been involved with. It's an incredible life, really. I mean, it's sad that he's gone, but 94 years and incredibly productive years, amazing. Yeah, not just the Intel stuff. Later on, he did philanthropy and did a lot of good and managed to give a lot of money or raise a lot of money for worthy causes. So, yes, he will be missed. There was one comment, I don't know if this is true, but um, somebody asked him if there was like an equivalent of Moore's Law for software. And he said, yeah, the more software written, the bugs double. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Docker made a huge stink over the last couple of weeks. They announced the end of Docker-free teams. Everyone was fucking up in arms about it. There was a huge backlash. They half apologized. That made it worse. And then eventually they just did a U-turn on it and said, oh, yeah, sorry. But uh, I think the damage is done. I think that Docker's reputation was already a bit shaky, but now open source projects are just kind of going to have to start migrating away from one centralized service to uh, GitHub centralized service. So that'll be fine. I think you're right. You know, the death, early death of Docker was reported years ago, and it didn't really happen. There's a lot of momentum behind people using their image repositories. Whether it'll have an effect of touched Docker that much, I'm not sure. But hasn't it always been a case that Docker, the technology, has always been amazing, and no one's ever had any mm. big issues with that? It's, it's been huge, it's blown up, but monetizing it has always been the problem. Yeah, I think it's the same old problem we, we find ourselves talking about a lot. You know, how do you monetize a successful open source project, especially one with huge demands on infrastructure, which Docker must have? Mm. I've seen some people saying, oh, this is only 2% of their users, and it was just them just doing a bit of tidying up, and the messaging was wrong. But it, it seems like an awfully big stink to have kicked up over 2% of their users. It seems to be this way whenever somebody does something which is in the uh, against the interests of an open source project. See things like Freenode, where one minute everybody's in love with them, the next minute they make some ham-fisted attempt to shut down a massive source of leaking revenue, and then everyone says, no, we never liked them anyway, we're going to go and do something else. This story, as Graham said, has played out so many times in the last few years. Nobody seems to be learning from it. There is obviously a bit of a crunch on for, for cash now. And so people are looking to tie up all of this seemingly lost revenue just spewing out of them. And they seem to think that open source projects are a soft touch and people will just accept it or, or pay up. And they weren't asking for a, a vast amount of money. It was something like four or $500 a year per project, which, depending on which project it is that you are pushing out images for, seems like a reasonable cost for hosting. But it's just against the will of the people of open source. I think open source people are relatively realistic. Not all of them. I will caveat that. But most are realistic. Most of them work in a business. Most of them run a business. And I reckon 
if Docker was to be honest about what it had to do and why it had to do it and then said, you know, maybe we'll reduce things down. But they had stuff like stipulating that, oh, if you actually made money by doing consulting on your project, then that you you didn't count as open source anymore. I was like, well, that's literally every open source project makes money that way. It seemed like it was vindictively trying to target as many projects as possible. And yes, you're right. They probably have mountains of data they have to ship in and out. But I think you can come to sort of terms if we all act grown up and talk to each other about why things have to be done a certain way. But I, now and again, that just doesn't seem to happen. They just seem to dictate from high what has to go now and yeah it burns them and i don't know i for one would not be touching anything that docker do it doesn't mean i'm going to use docker hub but yeah it's uh it's i think it's like roll your own infrastructure again wins i think another problem I've, it's taken me a while to find it was the wording of the original message i don't know who writes these things or what filters they go through but they so often end up terribly i mean this one's like the free team organizations are legacy subscriptions. That's a legacy subscription tier to people who are using it. And if you own a legacy free subscription, it will be suspended. And if you don't upgrade, then your Docker will retain your organization data for 30 days, after which it will be subject to deletion. And, you know, for people using it as part of their CI systems, probably for years and loads of other considerations, being given potentially 30 days to change everything, update everything, look into how everything works was just unreasonable, especially completely out of the blue. And especially when Docker rely on and have benefited from many of those open source projects themselves. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think the main problem was the communication here. It wasn't even necessarily the decisions that they were making. If they had communicated it better, there wouldn't have been such a backlash. People didn't know, for example, were they going to lose their namespaces. Mm. Well, then I think the CTO came out on Twitter to say, no, you won't lose the namespace. But then people wouldn't be able to update their containers. And so people would be pulling down out-of-date ones that had vulnerabilities in them. It was just communicated poorly. There wasn't even an official announcement. It was just an email that went out to a bunch of people. And then people started posting about it on their blogs and social media and stuff. That said, a tweet is a legally binding document, as Elon can attest to. <laughs> Although not if you call someone pedo guy, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. He managed to weasel out of that one, didn't he? The Internet Archive has lost its first fight to scan and lend ebooks like a library, says The Verge. And the Internet Archive has a post, the fight continues. So the Internet Archive scanned a load of books and was lending them out like a library. And they'd only lend them out one copy at a time, corresponding to the actual physical books that they had. And for a while, that was all fine. And then COVID hit, and they just relaxed that rule and just lent out multiple copies. The publishers got really fucking pissed off with them, sued them. It's taken a while, but here we are, basically three years later, and there's a summary judgment saying that, yeah, you can't get away with this any longer. They're going to fight against it. It's a long legal process, as usual, but it's not looking good for the Internet Archive. And I don't know how I feel about this. On the one hand, it's bad. But on the other hand, what the fuck did they expect? Yeah, the, the funny thing was, though, did I not see that the publishers are all making rec record profits at the exact same time? So it, it's really hard for them to prove that there was any material damage done. So I don't know how that one tallies, but I do kind of see your point in the fact that, yes, this does seem like this wouldn't have ever worked. 
I don't think they're arguing solely on loss of revenue. I think that they're arguing on copyright grounds as much as anything that, you know, you're not allowed to do that. And they're kind of right on that. I, I don't really understand how they thought that they, it was going to be okay. They did try and use some fair use arguments about it being transformative and stuff, but that was never going to work, was it? That was just ludicrous, really. And it's a bit annoying because I really, really like the Internet Archive. The Wayback Machine is just amazing. And it's not just the Wayback Machine. It's also all the other stuff that they archive. But this just seemed like a misstep from them to me. I, I, I get what they wanted to do, and it is noble and all the rest of it, but it just set them up for failure as far as I can see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame because you don't want to waste the goodwill that exists for the Internet Archive on things that realistically don't seem winnable. Like, I think it's fine to be a library and to rent a book out to somebody and have only the one copy. And that's the way libraries work here in Ireland. I'm sure it's the same in the UK, probably most of the US exactly the same way too. And I think, you know, you can only play within the rules. You can't sort of make them up yourself. And it, it just seems a shame. It's a wasted opportunity. You know, keep this for a big, important fight, like archives of people's Twitter posts that they tried to delete and get rid of and then don't want to show you. I mean, that would be where you should fight. Oh no, fuck that. I've tweeted some dumb shit and deleted it in my time, man. Let it let it go. Let it just disappear. <laughs> Running for politics? One day. I mean, I think Phelium just kind of hinted at this. It's in such a precarious situation considering all the other stuff that you can find on the Internet Archive. <laughs> and I think it's really valuable that they were building bridges to publishers and building trust and relationships, even if it is under weird terms. I mean, we'd all rather they'd be like data anarchy and we could all have access to everything. I think it was a valuable step they were doing, and this is probably a step too far. Are you worried about the Amiga ROMs getting deleted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am, yeah. That's it. That and synth samples. Oh, that and that. No, we shouldn't mention it. The entire scum VM archive of ISO. Mm. Whoosh! Shut up! Jesus! <laughs> Sierra might rise from the dead again. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Right, it's time for another Linux Outlaw-style micro-watch. So, let's shit on Microsoft. First of all, GitHub managed to publish their private SSH key. And then they had to revoke it, and then everyone got scary warnings. I mean, people make mistakes. Let's not shit on the person who fucked it up. I think we actually should shit on the person that fucked it up because that person should never have had access to that key. No human being should even know what that key is. The secret machine should know about it, nothing else. I don't understand how it 
it's possible for a human being to have a copy of that entire key just like on their laptop. <laughs> it's bizarre. Not everybody has a copy of that key on their laptop. <laughs> <laughs> they go around with a USB stick on, on your startup <laughs> and they plug it in and go, there you go, you've got it now. Also, I want to shit on their communication again, which is going to be my theme for this episode. Their messaging was out of an abundance of caution. They've replaced their RSA association. No mention of this. And also, however many millions of people are now going to have to, you know, get rid of their old keys and update their new keys and however many man in the middle tax that could potentially cause. No, an abundance of caution. We're just replacing our RSA keys. It's absolute bollocks, that messaging. Just be honest with us and we'll all understand. It's funny you say it because I saw that story headline early in a week and I just ignored it. Thought, oh, yeah, okay, somebody else has just made a mess of something. I didn't realize how serious it actually was. Mm. And now I think we're all primed when we read out of an, when a politician says out of an abundance of caution, <laughs> they're going to filter the internet and require age mm. verification. I was in a public stall and I was trying to SSH into a server. But Matthew Garrett wrote a piece, we need better support for SSH host certificates. And uh, he, he talks about how we've got SSL certs for browsers and how that is technically possible with SSH, but it hasn't been adopted and it should be because you could set up a system where this wouldn't matter. You could just change that key out and people wouldn't have this big scary warning and wouldn't have to run the SSH keygen dash capital R github.com command. It could just happen all seamlessly in the background. So it's definitely not the person who fucked it up's fault. It's arguably GitHub as an organization's fault for allowing someone to be able to fuck it up. But Garrett is arguing that it's more like the whole ecosystem's fault for not adopting a better sort of standard way to do this. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, all of us now rely on SSH for all kinds of things all the time, and I'm often seeing weaknesses in it. Using the same key for lots of different hosts, that kind of thing. Stuff that I've just been doing for years, which I shouldn't admit on a public podcast. <laughs> what, like your out-of-date CentOS server? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. rot row. <laughs> I'm going to find that one day, and I'm going to pwn it, Graham. I'm surprised you can still SSH into that from a, a modern system because I tried to do a Red Hat 5 system and uh, its keys were so old I had to SSH into a 6-1 first so I could SSH into that. <laughs> so what does that mean you're running as your SSH on your main machine then? Maybe it's got a 1404 VM. Uh, maybe. Well, also GitHub related, tracking the fake GitHub star black market with various tools. This is a post on dagster.io, and it's quite in-depth about how they did it, but the bottom line is, can you fucking believe this? People buy stars for their GitHub repos. It's like buying likes or retweets or views for YouTube videos or whatever. Instagram likes. Why would people do this? Clout. I suppose. It's a word I've heard about recently. <laughs> I'm not sure entirely what it means, but yes, that. But that in of itself was interesting to me, just the whole concept of people buying them. But how these people found out about it and sort of formed a, a list of spammy accounts that were doing this was a very interesting read that I'll put in the show notes. We won't go too much into that, but I just could not believe that people were buying these stars, man. That just blew my mind. If there's money to be made selling it, then people will invest time and energy in making a system to exploit it. 
I think it's a lazy community management measurement metric. How many stars have we got on our project on GitHub? Oh, if that number's going up every week, then we're winning. And then, you know, for a few bucks, you could buy an extra couple of hundred stars. Oh, that's my job done. I'm a great social network manager because I've increased our likes. That's what I'd do. Well, yeah, it reeks of those YouTube channels that have got hundreds and hundreds or thousands of subscribers and no views because they've just either bought them or just spammed them and and done competitions or whatever, subscribe for this, whatever, win this prize, and then they don't get any views because their videos are shit and don't ride the algorithm. I just thought that open source and GitHub was above that, but... Microsoft got involved. (sighs) Yeah, it's definitely Microsoft's fault. It is, you're right. Not just people (laughs) being... Uh, whatever. Shower bastards, I think, was the term you were looking for. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of shower bastards, uh, let's conclude MicroWatch with Microsoft is building a cryptocurrency wallet into its Edge browser. Hey, hip kids, what are you into these days? Yeah. It feels like this was kind of decided in a meeting 18 months ago <laughs> and is still not quite ready. And now it's just about starting to leak. And like, what are they doing? Like, read the fucking room, Microsoft. Crypto wallets in browsers. I mean, we've got Brave if you want that sort of bollocks. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, uh, that's it. I've decided I hate Microsoft now. Yes. <laughs> I didn't have to do any work at all. I love it. <laughs> well, they've been absolutely perfect up until now. They've done everything right, never made any mistakes, never pissed anyone off. No. And then now with their browser, they put a crypto wallet in and just, no, that's it. I'm not having it. Good. Fuck Microsoft. I'm not using any of their, their stuff ever again. Good. I just think that if you're into crypto and you store all of your crypto in an in-browser wallet, then you deserve what's coming. Yeah. Where do you store yours, Graham? I'm not going to say. <laughs> it's, like, oh, it's on that Red Hat 5 machine. It so is. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so obsolete, it's now not requiring patches anymore. It's perfect. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication, and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. All right, it's been a while. It's been too long since we had a go at Mozilla. (laughs) Introducing Mozilla.ai, investing in trustworthy AI. And this comes off the back of them launching the Responsible AI Challenge. Phelim, I bet you're really, really pleased that they're concentrating their resources on AI stuff. No, you call it really pleased I am. I bet they tried to take my internet out today with their Responsible AI. 
fuckers. Yeah, this is a, a yet again another farce. So, <laughs> like, why don't they get in on the crypto farce while they're at it? And you know, more NFTs. I mean, they might as well do a lot of them at this point. And they're committing thirty million dollars to this product. Uh, where have they got thirty million spare? to spend like this i don't understand they just cut out on the 11 o'clock tea break for the everybody in the office and uh, that covered it maybe mitchell doesn't get a pay rise this year (laughs) it feels like not very long ago we were talking about how mozilla were going to raise money because they were really concerned about running out and now this Maybe the AI will come up with schemes for them. Maybe they, they ask Bard or, <laughs> or, the, or the Microsoft shit show while it was too busy, you know, do the white supremacy thing at some point. Well, right. I think I'm going to have to devil's advocate this thing. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> go on. You'll go on fire. <laughs> right. Okay. So this AI shit <laughs> is happening. Well, it's not happening yet because it hasn't happened yet. There's no AI. All right. What they call AI, machine learning, uh, language model, bullshit, whatever, is happening, right? And so do we not want some sort of responsible player who cares about open standards and open source and, and rights and stuff? Do we not want someone to have a go at it at least? Sure. And what they should do is if you try to go on there and start talking about this, it formats your computer. That would be the actual responsible and trustworthy thing to do. Oh, come on. No, I'm not. It's all, it's a scam. A lot of it is a scam. And that is the only way. It, there is, it's like saying, oh, let's have some ethical NFTs. No, you can't because it's all bullshit. That's why. No, I'm not this having that. This is bullshit right now. It is though. I'm not having it. Right. It's statistics. It's T9 on your feckin' Nokia phone. <laughs> That's all it is. And it just happens to spew what seemingly, until it doesn't, you know, seems correct and legit. Right. Let's not conflate it all together as one thing, right? You've got your bullshit chatbots and then you've got your art uh, inspiration stuff, shall we say, the the generative art stuff, right? That's one aspect of this machine learning AI thing. But another aspect of it is, for example, the medical stuff where they are finding new drugs. Are they though? Well, at least in theory. That's the whole scam, isn't it? In theory, they're gonna. Yeah, sure. Just give us another check for, you know, many, many zeros. Because let's face it, nobody, unless they have a colossal bank account, is going to be able to fund the training of a model. It just isn't going to happen. And even the likes of chat API are closing down their APIs to stuff. And researchers are sounding alarm bells of, you know, if we wanted to learn about stuff, this is exactly the opposite way we should go about doing all this. So I don't for one second believe there's anything but a scam going on here. Uh, we've been over this, and I, I don't really want to go over the same territory. <laughs> but honestly, Phelim, I understand your scepticism, and it's good to be sceptical. I think it has become like the new NFT and unavoidable online. I agree it's too overhyped. But if you do look at it, it is producing real usable results, and it'll be applicable to lots of different fields, and it's only the very beginning. Whether it's AI or not, I don't care. The output is genuine and it can produce things that we couldn't produce before. Whereas with Mozilla, I would much rather Mozilla 
did this in the background, innovated, got involved with some people without these huge announcements, which do feel just like another grift. Like, weren't they on the verge of getting into the NFT thing? And this feels just like another bandwagon hopping exercise when they can't even prove to us that they can make a success of their core product. So I'm sceptical about how successful they'll be with something like this. Well, when they got into the phones, that was a rip-roaring success. Yeah, I have two of them. They're brilliant. <laughs> My concern is aligned with Graham's here, I think, which is that Mozilla are right to make sure that the imminent uprising at least has somebody on the goodies side. My concern is that Mozilla are not big enough, influential enough, have enough resources to really make a go of it and we'll end up with a sort of half-formed poorly executed product which is just uh, uh you know forgotten about they're not relevant enough i think is the word you're looking for there mm. they used to be this really relevant uh company they used to be with it but then they changed what it <laughs> was when chrome came along and now they're not it and it's uh, scary to them and they tr- they're trying to find the new thing to be relevant and so they just keep throwing shit at the wall and seemingly have forgotten about their core product and uh maybe firefox isn't their core product anymore maybe it should be or it definitely should be but maybe it isn't is it overpaying ceos who do nothing <laughs> well seemingly so yeah on to a bit of admin then first of all thank you everyone who supports us with paypal and patreon we really do appreciate that if you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And you sometimes get episodes early. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. And if you want to talk to other listeners, you can find the various communities at latenightlinux.com slash community. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. I guess now it's time for us all to listen to Phelim bang on about bloody KDE for five minutes in everyone's favourite segment, <laughs> KDE Corner. What? <laughs> what? Where'd you get that from? It's AI generated. I'm afraid it's AI generated. Phelim, you said AI couldn't do anything good. Well, it can make Stephen Fry take the piss out of you, so <laughs> fuck you. Oh, that was Stephen Fry. Oh my God. Okay, no, that was terrible then didn't sound quite as smug as Stephen Fry. I think that was the giveaway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, testing QT6 begins. Yeah, uh, just there's a few pointers in this one. Obviously, if you are prepared to build from source, then you are definitely not a standard user, but there's a few questions and answers at the end of it to try and help out. 
and try and guide you in the right way and what you should do if you encounter bugs and stuff. So it's a kind of a let's see how it goes for the moment. They're not quite sure how reliable or stable it'll be, but it's beginning, so it's good. All right, X Wayland screencasting. So this is really cool. It was a bit understated, but it's fantastic because one of the things that Wayland does is have security. One of the things that X did not have was security. And uh, things like screencasting, so think of Teams, Slack, uh, Zoom, and maybe even Rust Desk. That's still a bit of a question mark whether that will work or not. This gives them the ability to screen share, create, say, sort of uh, an invisible box window that they can then apply to a window that can be shared across. And yes, X apps could eavesdrop on that, but you get to control who can see what apps and stuff. So I think this is a really cool thing. They're still not thinking whether it's actually a big major deal or a feature that's going to be in six permanently or not. I really hope it is because I think this is massively important, especially if you're doing remote admin or remote support for anybody at any time. And uh, yeah, this is really cool and uh, very understated like usual. All right. And something about Gcompre. Yeah. So there's about 180 plus activities in Gcompre and it's a cool educational piece of software. And for anybody who might even be in a school that are looking to use free software where they might not be able to pay for, or maybe even the flash stuff that they've been using has been sunsetted or whatever, take a look at it. It's quite a cool video and it walks through all that stuff. So it's quite, it's quite cool for people to see. All right. Lab plot 2.10. Yeah. So loads of stuff into that uh, new visualizations, spreadsheet ability. Uh, you can now import and export to Excel. There's a whole lot of analytics tools doing things that I don't know what they mean, like Fourier filtering and max likelihood, etc. Better memory usage. And we had this in the KD for Scientists page that I came up, and it's a really excellent piece of software for people who are maybe looking for a better version of MATLAB that is free. There you go. It's excellent. All right. And a couple of This Week in KDEs from Nate. Yeah, so Nate, as usual, loads of bug fixes. Uh, he has a bit of a running joke now where he says, Pharonix and himself, where there are lots of Wayland fixes in this. So yeah, they continue to gather pace. The dot three was out of 527. That fixed a few things for me, my virtual machines that would then not wake up from sleep do now. There's still a few more, but they're working down through those issues. And it's good that they're still working on that while they're also doing the QT6. But obviously there's bit of focus there but um a few new things that have come in with the samba wizard for file shares if it bugs out there's a, a decent error message now trying to point you in the right direction and the same for when you're importing vpn configs and it's nice to see that because uh, obviously with a lot of people now maybe working remote you know if you've got an issue with the vpn it's nice to be able to part way or at least give a clue as to where it is and one thing that made me amazed was that some keyboards have an emoji key what what <laughs> is this but apparently, if you press that, now the emoji picker pops up automatically. So I'm really happy that we're helping out those people. That's presumably for mobile. I don't know. I mean, maybe keyboards do come with an emoji key. I have no idea. SwiftKey does. Oh, cool. Good for it. That's Microsoft. Oh, no, I have to stop using Microsoft. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, but they've been working on making multi-screen even more robust and Funnily for Fedora, you can now upgrade between Fedora versions through Discover, which is quite cool. So it now supports the DNF upgrade ability, which is quite cool if you're into that sort of thing. All right, a couple of Season of KDE things. Yeah, so this is just because it'll be coming up soon enough. And, you know, for people who might be doing even the Google Summer Code, it's just a couple of perspectives from two different people on how they got involved and how they helped out and stuff and, you know, their first introduction to coding with it. And if you're maybe even uni or whatever and you're looking for a bit of 
decent active stuff over the summer, this might be a good idea if you if you can follow along and like the sound of it, that you maybe can apply. Right, well, links to all that in the show notes as usual. We better get out of here then. We'll be back next week with some discoveries and feedback probably. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.